This podcast is made possible in part by the Low Country's Indigo Books, supporting public radio and independent thinking. Ordering and more is available at 843-768-2255. This episode of Walter Edgar's Journal is an encore of a previously broadcast program. Welcome to Walter Edgar's Journal. With me from the studios at WHRO in Norfolk, Virginia, is Professor Zachary Lechner, who has written a very interesting new book entitled The South of the Mind, American Imaginings of White Southernness, 1960 to 1980. With that introduction, I'd like to welcome Professor Lechner to the journal. Thank you, Walter. It's good to be here. All right. Zach, The South of the Mind. You want to explain that to our listeners? Sure. Some of your listeners may be familiar with a book called uh, The Mind of the South, a much more popular and better-selling book than mine. So uh, it's by... Yours hadn't been out for 75 years. That's true. That's true. (laughs) You are are correct about that, Walter. I appreciate that. Uh, It it was written by a man named Wilbur Cash. Uh, He wrote under the name W.J. Cash. He was a, a journalist from North Carolina. And in 1941, he published uh, this book called The Mind of the South, which, you know, as the title suggests, purported to explain uh, the South and it's, uh, you know, the, the, what made it tick. Um, and so that book, wa- which, you know, didn't necessarily present the South and really was a very kind of limited look at the South because Cash was really trying to examine the white South. And in fact, some scholars say, well, you know, it's really not even a book about the South, it's a book about, you know, North Carolina, me uh, kind of mill people, um, which is what Cash knew a lot about. But regardless, it's a book that was extremely influential for a number of decades after it was published in, in 41. And, you know, Martin Luther King would famously say that C. Van Woodward's book, The Strange Career of, of Jim Crow, was kind of the Bible of the civil rights movement. I think the uh, mind of the South was essentially kind of the uh, the nation's Bible uh, for a number of decades in understanding the white South in, in particular. So my book is, you know, not a, not an attempt to understand the reality of the South, which of course cash was interested in, in trying to suss out. But my book is looking at the years 1960 uh, between 1960 and 1980 and trying to understand American perceptions of the South and the white South in particular. You're absolutely right about the cash book. It was on every undergraduate reading list. Certainly, I had it at Davidson College. You read it in graduate seminars. It was then considered one of the indispensable books about the American South. Of course, it dealt with the South pre-World War II, which was a very different South by even 1950. Why did you choose that two decades, 1960 to 1980? Well, I, I thought it was a very interesting period in the history of, of, the, of the South and, and in particular the history of the nation because one of the things that I, you know, found in just not even as, you know, before I became a researcher and a scholar, uh, somebody who just, you know, listened to music from that, from that era. And one of the things that I noticed is, you know, in the late 1960s, there were a lot of West Coast uh, hip musicians uh, starting to play country music and, you know, rock musicians playing country music. And, I, and, and you know, this is music steeped in the South. They were covering Hank Williams and other, you know, Southern country artists. And I just started to think about, you know, what, what was that all about? And so I, you know, started to look at this period a little bit more intensely. And what I was trying to figure out, you know, is not only kind of in the specific case of these musicians, but just kind of in general, how was it that the South during a period, you know, especially in the 1960s, the white South, a period in which it would had such a terrible kind of public relations problem. It was viewed so negatively by so much of the rest of the nation. How was it that at the same time you had all of these other kind of counter portrayals of the South, not just in country rock, rock music, but on television in the Beverly Hillbillies or the Andy Griffith show that showed the South in a, in a, in a very often positive light. How was it that you had kind of these two images kind of working, working together? 
Um, how is it that that positive image was never really overwhelmed by the negative image and in fact seemed to provide the nation with some type of sucker, I guess, you know, for, for uh, lack of a better word, you know, something that the, the, the nation seemed to be missing. This imagined, of course, white South seemed to be providing it. And you saw that just not just in kind of poorly read, you know, <laughs> cultural productions, uh, but widely, you know, widely received popular culture of the time. And so that juxtaposition just seemed uh, quite, quite fascinating uh, to me. So I looked at this period of the 60s and the, and the 70s, and, you know, I always tell people that the the book, it, it's going to be kind of lumped into, you know, a Southern history. And certainly I, I can understand that. But really, I see it, you know, as not just a work of uh, Southern history or Southern studies, but really the story I was trying to, to tell in the book is a story about what was happening in America in the late 1960s and 1970s. Because the other the other issue in, in question, you know, is the main question that I was trying to, to ask is and answer is why, why then why did, what role was this white South fulfilling for Americans during this very, you know, turbulent period of U S history. And, you know, you think about the sixties and the seventies, it's a time of great violence. It's a time of great social change. You know, the Vietnam war is, is raging for much of, much of the time. Uh, the, you know, there's a feminist movement, there's uh, various civil rights movements, um, which is uh, very uh, ex- exciting for a lot of Americans and 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 very uh, uh, scary uh, for for many Americans as well. And so this white South becomes kind of it, it conceived in, in in a almost always conceived in a kind of rural or vaguely traditionalist out of time form. It it becomes a a refuge a a, a bulwark against uh, many of these unsettling. Changes and it was a, it was a white South that could be utilized, you know, regardless of your of your political position. You know, you could be a, a conservative, you know, who supported uh, George Wallace and his segregationist politics in the late 1960s. And you know, Wallace was certainly he called himself a professional Southerner, um, so he was very much identified with the South. Or you could be, you know, a, a hippie uh, in anywhere in America, smoking dope and you know, listening to the latest you know, Bird's album, Sweetheart of the Rodeo, and, you know, imagining this kind of, you know, bucolic white South as a, as a refuge from, you know, the, the technocracy of, that America had become by the late 1960s. Yes, the, the agrarians of Nashville from the 1930s would be, probably were jumping out of their graves and shouting with what you're, what you're talking about. They imagined a world that would have been so much better, and they were just dealing with the modernism, industrialization of the 1930s. Mm-hmm. much less what was going on after after World War II. All right, Zach, we need to pause for a moment, let our listeners know that this is Walter Edgar's journal, and I'm speaking with Zach Lechner about his new book, The South of the Mind, American Imaginings of White Southernness, 1960-1980. When you talked about music, I, cu- I couldn't help think about one of my, my favorites, Hank Williams Jr.'s A Country Boy Can Survive. Um, the last True. the last verse goes, we're from North California and South Alabama and little towns all across this land, and we can skin a buck, we can run a trot line, and a country boy can survive. I that, think that's right. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I mean, you know, that, and I mean, it speaks to a couple of things. One is, you know, in some ways kind of the, this, what, um, you know, James Gregory's talked about with his book on the on the Southern migrations, you know, and how that transformed both the white and black Southerners. But, you know, so Southern culture after World War II um, begins to become nationalized in part because of the movement of of Southerners throughout throughout the nation. And then also, yeah, I mean, you don't have to be uh, Southern to, you know, to dig country music or, you know, to have a farm, certainly. So these values that become kind of specifically identified with the South or with, with Southerness, um, you know, they're, they're, they're widely applicable to a lot of different, uh, Americans. And, and so that, I think that's why this, what seems like in some ways kind of a narrow, very specific niche kind of appeal actually has a quite a, quite of a, quite a broad appeal. In fact, this, these are the two decades when what some people have considered the most Southern of sports NASCAR becomes a national sport. In fact, southern racetracks even lose out to northern and western racetracks. That's right. That's right. You know, and I think it's in the mid '60s that 
that Tom Wolf publishes his famous essay about the, you know, the race car driver, Junior Johnson, you know, calls him a great American hero. You know, he's not a Southern hero, you know, uh, even though he's, he's, uh, you know, a star of a, of a sport that's identified with the South, you know, it's, it's, he's an American hero. So it's, yeah, it speaks to this kind of broader nationalization of, of Southern, Southern American culture. Well, Zach, you know, it's it's not just one South. People, you know, you choose a theme about Southerness. Is it the the South of exceptionalism? Is it the South of um, progressivism? The vicious South. You you name it. You you actually go into all of these, and I think for our listeners, it would be interesting to talk about those various categories. Sure. The there are three different Souths um, that I identify. Um, and that I that I follow throughout the book, and uh, these three styles that I say are are uh, you know not invented, but they they arguably are the most popular during the period of the the '60s and, and the '70s, um, are what I, I refer to as the the vicious South, the changing South, and the down home South. So the the first one, the vicious South. I mean, that is the South of Birmingham. 1963. You know, that is the South of that blows up four little black girls, you know, in the 16th street Baptist church. That's the South that six, you know, police dogs on civil rights protesters and kills Goodman, Cheney and Schwerner, uh, outside of Philadelphia, Mississippi in 1964 during freedom summer. So this is a South that, you know, gives particularly non-Southern, but some Southern, but mostly non-Southern white liberals, you know, the feeling of, okay, you know, we're the real America. <laughs> you know, the South is the nation's other. It is horrible. It is vicious. It is racist. It is violent. It is everything that America, which is supposed to be a nation of, you know, liberty and equality, um, everything that it is not, okay? It is essentially the ugly redheaded stepchild of the nation. And so that is that vicious South narrative is represented in a whole host of places, but especially in uh, civil rights reporting. Um, you know, so there's all of these stories published, and you know, there. Are, I, I mean, what I one point that I don't want to get lost, and you know, my with my discussion or in, within the book itself, is that you know there was a lot of, of course, viciousness, incredible amount of. Uh, racism in in the South. Um, so it's not to say that oh this was just an imagining and it had no basis in truth. No, it absolutely had a had a strong uh, discernible basis in truth. But it was it was used as as a way to I think make other Americans uh, feel good about themselves. Northern liberals, uh, even moderates, feel good about themselves. And then you then you had the next trope, um, next narrative, the changing South. Now this was this was different. This was a more positive spin on the South. It would say, for example, someone using the changing South narrative, say someone like Harper Lee in To Kill a Mockingbird, or you know Norman Jewison in his adaptation of the novel uh, In the Heat of the Night, would say, you know, the South is an incredibly racist place, but you know what? It's changing. It's on the mend. The racism is declining. There is, I see, we see light at the end of the tunnel. There is a way for black and white uh, Southerners to work together. And in fact, kind of in its most extreme form, the Changing South narrative would suggest that the South, the white South in particular, had lessons to teach the rest of the nation. So this is what Jimmy Carter was talking about in 1976 when he was running for president the first time. And he tried to make this claim, and I think a lot of Americans uh, bought into this too, that, you know, the South has gone through the civil rights revolution. Carter would say the 1964 Civil Rights Act is the best thing that happened to the South in my lifetime because it it put us through this maelstrom of bitterness and, and violence, yes, and that was not good, but we came out on the other side, okay? And now we've solved a lot of racial problems. And so, hey, Boston, you're having some problems with busing, <laughs> okay? Um, we can help you, you know? So somebody like me, I have this kind of healing southernness that I can I can bring to the table. I'm a I'm a member of the of the changing South, or by that point he might have called it, you know, something like the changed South. And then finally, all right, excuse me before before you mm-hmm. leave that, mm-hmm. uh, because I have a, a good example for our South kind of listeners. In 19 
1964, James McBride Dabbs wrote a book called The Southern Heritage. He was president of the Southern Regional Council, the progressive, primarily white organization. Mm-hmm. Um, and on the back of the book, he says, I have written this book. For those who love the South so much, they want to make it better. For happy, relaxed, confident men for whom tomorrow is a day. For farmers, white or black, in this fruitful land still trust God. For hunters, for fishermen, who, as Isaac Walton says, are friendly men. For manageable men who have time to talk. For young men who want to live. For those who remember our great and tragic past. And for those who do not remember, but who are so imbued with that greatness that they face the future with hope. Finally, for all men who, loving their land and their neighbors, love God. If you find yourself on this list, reader, read on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that, that's, that is right. That is, that's exactly what I'm talking about with the, with the changing South narrative. That, mm-hmm. But we've had this will of the wisp of the new South ever since Henry Grady. Sure. You know, 10 years ago, there was, there was a new South. But mm-hmm. I think you're right in the 60s and 70s, there was a hope or a belief that things were getting better, particularly in the area of race relations. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, you're right. I mean, there's always, there's always a new South. It's, yeah, I mean, I don't know what incarnation of the new South we're on at this point, you know, <laughs> but it's, it's, it's always, it's always there, you know, and sometimes it's, you know, Grady's message was about industrialization. Sometimes it's about that. Sometimes it's about, you know, race relations, but usually it has, I mean, usually it's, it has to do with both of those things. But you're right. Yeah, it has. The New South is about it. In some ways, the South is modernizing. It's becoming more progressive in a sense. You know, in, even Henry Grady, you know, if you go back to his, you know, speeches on the New South, you know, he was he was saying, well, you know, slavery's gone, but that's good. You know, I mean, he was a he was an apologist for the lost cause, of course, but he was still, I guess you could argue, progressive on race in the sense that he wasn't, you know, kind of longing for the days of of slavery, even though he was you know, very much uh, happy to uh, perpetuate the uh, inequitable racial order of the of the post reconstruction years. But yeah, the the this it is essentially um, what I'm talking about. It is very much tied up into this notion of of a new South, however one wants to define that. Okay, all right, and your third segment. Yeah, the third segment um, is the down home South. So I mentioned the Beverly Hillbillies and the Andy Griffith Show. Uh, a little bit earlier, Jimmy Carter fits into this too. And the down, the down home South is putting Carter aside for a second. It, it is in the sixties, at least it's really the realm of television uh, sitcoms. Um, so the hillbillies and Andy Griffith, these are programs that, you know, at first glance, especially the Beverly hillbillies, you look at them and you say, wow, they're kind of, kind of making fun of, you know, uh, white Southerners. I, I don't see how this is a positive image. You know, uh, he seems, they seem to be laughing at granny when she talks about, you know, doing the, doing the washing in the, in the cement pond, you know, uh, meaning the, the swimming pool out there in their mansion in Beverly Hills. Uh, yeah. There is kind of some good natured ribbing at, 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 for, you know, at, at white Southerners, but there's one of the things that you notice if you watch the Beverly Hillbillies uh, is that, you know, over and over again, the Clampets, uh, this rural family from the Ozarks that has migrated, has hit it rich, you know, struck oil, hit it rich, gone to Beverly Hills, their values, their Southern rural values, they always retain them. And it's those Southern rural values that always triumph in every episode. I mean, there's always people out, you know, in, in a Beverly Hills, Bailey's episode trying to defraud the Clampets, you know, trying to pull one over on them. And they, they, you know, they never succeed, succeed. Um, and so the people who are shown to be you know, the baddies, uh, the bad guys are, you know, typically non-Southerners who are shown as being, you know, greedy, materialistic, you know, um, uh, part of a, a post-war uh, American society that has lost its sense of roots. The Clampets are fully rooted in their Southern locale, even though they're not in the South, they're in Southern California. They're still fully Southern. And with a show like the Andy Griffith show, it's a similar type of idea you know, Andy Griffith and his, you know, characters in, in Mayberry, North Carolina, um, you know, you most, the most famous episode of the Andy Griffith show probably is an episode I talk about in the book. It's called Man in a Hurry. It's beloved by Andy Griffith show uh, fans. 
it comes out in 1963 and it follows um, a, a man, uh, an out of town uh, businessman. He's uh, from the big city, the big bad city of Charlotte, North Carolina, right? Uh, and so he comes, <laughs> he comes to Mayberry, and you know he's he's well, he's literally a man in a hurry. You know his car breaks down. He's like he doesn't understand why he can't get his car fixed. Just cannot doesn't grasp why these Mayberryans move so slow. Like you know what he's 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 being driven crazy. Well, of course, by the end of the episode, you know he falls asleep, sit you know sitting in uh, a rocking chair on Andy's porch, you know while he's you know, peeling, peeling an apple, you know, he's been, he's been beguiled by, by, by Mayberry. And so, you know, these kind of small town, rural, small town, Southern values triumph once, once again. Now, what's interesting, I think one of the interesting things about the down home South narrative is that race, um, is nearly absent, almost entirely absent from the discourse. I mean, a lot of people like to say, you know, that there were no black people on the Andy Griffith show. Well, it's not entirely true. If you watch some episodes, there are some some background actors, no dialogue, but some of them are there. There's one episode later on the series where there's a an actor who's featured, black actor who's featured with a speaking part. But one of the things that's, you know, arguably a little bit uh, unsettling about these shows, uh, like the Hillbillies and Andy Griffith show, is that they seem to suggest that, you know, the white South can be a quite, you know, a uh, good thing. It can be worthy of, of celebration it, it, because it, it can create an ideal society. And certainly a place like Mayberry is presented as an ideal society. But what is suggested in these shows is that the only way you can do that is by essentially keeping black people out of the picture frame, you know, literally. Um, and so, um, you know, that, that is kind of one troubling feature. I think we don't necessarily uh, think about it's kind of what Stuart Hall is referred to as inferential uh, racism. So it's kind of an inferred racism. It's not certainly not explicit, but it's uh, it's 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 under the surface. But for most people listen, watching the Andy Griffith Show and the Beverly Hillboys, you know, I don't think they're 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 seeing that. Certain if they're white, certainly African Americans would have you know definitely noticed it, and they did, and they spoke out against it. But uh, but you know, for the most part, the show, uh, you know, was beloved by fans as this kind of model ideal you know, Southern community, which existed in the midst of, you know, great civil rights unrest. So this juxtaposition is, uh, is, is really, really, really fascinating. There was a program a while back in which several scholars, uh, and you participated, talked about your book. And of course, everybody would like to have you include things that if they were writing the book, they're going to tell you about it, right? Yeah, sure. And the question was, where do white women come in to this story? Or is this really a story about white maleness, white masculinity. Yeah, I would say that it largely is a story about white masculinity. And what I would say is that these imaginings that I've described, the one kind of, I mean, I mentioned that they're typically rural, you know, that they, they deal with whiteness and they deal uh, with masculinity. Um, it, they present the South as a masculine locale. And so in the book, there's not a lot of representations of women per se of of white southern women. Now certainly you could you could yeah you could certainly write a book that included that that broadened the range of of imaginings because you know certainly the imaginings that I'm focusing on are are not the not the only ones per se. But I found that these kind of rural white southern masculine uh, imaginings were really important. They seem to me to be, you know, kind of the dominant narrative of the white South during this period. But certainly in the book, I mean, you will, you will find women in particular, white women shaping this, this narrative, this discourse that, that I'm talking about, you know, so, you know, I'll discuss Linda Ronstadt, I discuss Harper Lee and, and To Kill a Mockingbird. I uh, talk about Elizabeth Hardwick uh, writing, you know, essays um, you know, praising civil rights protesters and and denigrating uh, white Southern you know resistors of civil rights uh, during the uh, during the the Selma campaign in nineteen sixty five. So, and, and you can even look at people like Florence King and Southern Ladies and Gentlemen, which is meant to be funny, and it and mm-hmm. it is, but about two thirds of her chapters are about men. That's right. That, yeah, that's that's exactly right. The good old boy, Daddy's boy. The not so right. good old boy. 
Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's right. Yeah. And so there's there's something about these these imaginings that that places often places men at the at the center at the center of them. Looking at the world today here in 2019, and the fact that everywhere you look, not just in a southern town, pickup trucks, big vehicles. Now you don't you don't see shotgun racks on rear windows of pickups like I remember from my childhood, but in big cities it, they were rare. They were country vehicles, right? And they were identified as if you have a pickup. Well, you know they are. Farmers, they're rednecks, what have you. Now, it seems to be to have a pickup instead of a sedan or a convertible, which used to be the the car for Southern boys to cruise up and down the road at Myrtle Beach and what have you. It's a pickup, and the bigger the better. Right. That's true. I mean, you know, I, I think that, you know, if if, if you're – if you're trying to figure out kind of where that comes from, I think that, yeah, a lot of it stems from this, from this era. And, you know, that, I think the pickup truck is a, is a manifestation of, um, you could say redneck culture. And I don't, I don't mean the term redneck in any pejorative sense, but that, I think that that idea of kind of white Southern masculine rural culture, um, becomes nationalized becomes popularized in the in the 1970s and you know this is an era in which uh george wallace is taking and others are taking that kind of redneck epithet and uh you know reappropriating it you know to so a redneck doesn't have to be somebody who is even southern you know it could just be somebody and i think it's uh, i think it's david goldfield you know the historian at, at unc charlotte you know he's, he's he basically was saying that you know it could just be kind of anybody who's got a got a gripe against the government you know it just it becomes kind of a conservative um or maybe better way to put it kind of a kind of anti-liberal stance and that doesn't necessarily have to be political per se although it could be um but you know, it could just be, uh, you know, kind of culturally speaking. So this is the person who, yeah, maybe has a gun rack in their truck, you know, somebody who goes hunting, somebody who, um, you know, listens to country music, you know, even though they work on a, on an assembly line in Detroit. Yeah. It just, it, I think it's, it, it represents that broadening of Southern culture, that nationalizing of Southern culture that I've mentioned a couple of, couple of times, a way to take something that was perceived as being negative. You know, you're a redneck. That means, oh, you're racist or, you know, you're poor um, or, you know, you work with your hands and, you know, someone might perceive that as being, you know, lowly or, or, or bad and to really wear it as a, as a badge of, a badge of honor. Um, it's in some ways, it's kind of a little bit different, but it's in, in some, in some ways similar to what some hipsters do today, you know, with particularly with Southern food culture you know, taking the, taking the cult, the, the food of essentially poor Southerners, poor black and white Southerners and, you know, dressing it up and making it kind of into a, an, into a gourmet feast. Well, I don't think the folks with, you know, in, in the North with the pickup trucks and the gun racks were, you know, were, were conceiving them of themselves as particularly hip necessarily, but, you know, they were using that culture in a, in a, in a similar way to speak to their own lives. Um, even if they didn't have any particular connection with the South um, or with, quote unquote, you know, Southern, uh, you know, Southern values, per se. All right, Zach, we need to pause for a moment. Let our listeners know that this is Walter Edgar's journal. And I'm speaking with Zach Lechner about his new book, The South of the Mind, American Imaginings of White Southernness, 1960 to 1980. George Wallace has come up several times, but when he ran in primaries in the North, for example, Michigan, shocked everybody with how well he did. That's right. Particularly in urban areas. Absolutely. I mean, George, George Wallace is a, is a, you know, interesting figure. I mean, a troubling figure, um, but definitely an interesting figure. And he is, he is, you know, somebody who, again, he calls himself a, you know, professional Southerner. And I've never really understood, (laughs) quite understood what that means. Um, you know, but I, 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 I interpreted basically to, to mean that he is somebody who identifies himself with the South and as a defender 
of the white South in, in particular. And this kind of fits into his, you know, segregationist worldview. Now, George Wallace is understandably, you know, George Wallace has, has a certain appeal to, to white Southerners, um, during the civil rights movement. But of course he also has an appeal as you're suggesting with his, you know, his primary successes in, in some Northern States in the mid and late sixties and early seventies, he has an appeal to white Northerners who are part of this backlash against the civil rights uh, movement. So yeah, for, again, for, you know, thinking of that anti-liberal streak that I referenced earlier, uh, you know, Wallace is very much a part of that. I mean, he's, he's, he's promoting and he's promoting his Southerness as, you know, the antidote to civil rights unrest, to race riots in, in, in the North, um, you know, to, uh, you know, feminists who he doesn't like, who he thinks, you know, should get back into the kitchen, um, and just kind of shut their mouth. So for Wallace, you know, Southerness is a, is not a parochial thing. It's a, it's a broadly applicable notion. Um, so he imagines the South in, in that way to be capable of, in its, in its violence and reactionary nature, capable of, of resolving a whole host of problems that conservative white Americans are, are fearful of. Um, and so, you know, we, today we look at the, that era and we think, well, you know, why would, why would people have supported George Wallace? You know, he clearly was a, was a, a racist, even when he was, you know, making kind of coded, uh, appeals, but you know, he, he was able to, I think, use his Southerness in a very savvy way to, uh, reach out to a lot of disaffected, uh, white Americans who were just concerned that the nation had gone topsy turvy and they needed some type of roots, you know, to, they wanted some kind of roots to be able to put back down and try to put the genie back in, into the bottle as it were. And, uh, for them, Wallace was their guy. Okay. Well, let, I want to go back to the vicious South and particularly how movies and books may have, have played into that. And of course, you single out deliverance as an, as an example, not only the violent South, but a very scary South. Yes, yes. And, you know, a, a subset of this this vicious uh, South is um, something that I call uh, the masculine South. Um, and, you know, Wallace is part of that. Uh, certainly deliverance is, is part of that. And, uh, yeah, the film uh, Walking Tall uh, starring Joe, Joe Don Baker, right? Yeah, it's kind of a drive-in classic uh, is, is part of that. But, yeah, de- deliverance is an interesting case. I mean, you know, it's, it's as I say in the book, it's, it's you know, certainly not a, an original interpretation to say uh, deliverance is about, you know, manhood. I mean, that's clearly what James Dickey was writing about in the novel and the, and the English director John Borman was, was, you know, was shooting in, in the film. Remember, I mean, the four, originally four, there's only three left at the end of the journey, but the original four main characters in, in the film are Atlanta suburbanites. I mean, these are, these are, these are men, um, but they, according to Dickie and Borman, they've kind of had their rough edges, you know, sanded away. You know, they, they live in air-conditioned suburban comfort. The John Voight character, Ed Gentry, I mean, he's a, you know, he's an advertising, you know, executive has a pretty easy, cushy life, you know? And so the, the journey down this fictional river in the, in the book and in the film is a way for them to get back, you know, kind of, kind of play weekend warrior in a, in a sense, you know, to kind of get back their, their masculinity. And, you know, we, we know, you know, the probably many of our, your listeners know kind of the, the main points of, of, of the, the deliverance plot, but, you know, one of the characters is, is raped by a mountain man. Um, at one point, um, another of the characters is killed. Um, another is, you know, grievously wounded. And, uh, the John Voight character, Ed Gentry is, you know, forced to, you know, kind of help save everybody. And Dickie, I think in the the film, the conclusions of the film are a bit more complicated, but certainly Dickie, you know, saw the transformation, the the remasculinization of the, of the Ed Gentry character as, as a positive thing. You know, he would write later that, you know, essentially Ed down the line, you know, later in life after he, you know, has, has been away from the river for a while, he, he can still reflect on this experience and he can feel, you know, the river, the river inside of him, you know? And what I took that to mean is that he's become a man, 
again and in and you know he's he's recaptured his his masculinity and that this was a good thing and despite you know the the rape and the deaths and the and the and the violence that was that was all part of a worthy task of of reinvigorating this this man's uh weakened uh virility so you know the southern mountain people of deliverance they're interesting because they're not you know the they're not Mayberians, you know, they're, they're not good, uh, you know, f- humble folk, folksy people. They're, they're scary people. And in many ways they're deformed, literally deformed people, uh, degenerate people. Um, but they are people who have managed to survive. And that's what these suburbanites have no idea how to do. And so even though these mountaineers are not kind of the, you know, you know typical, you know, celebratory portrait of, of white Southerness, they do lack, they do, they do rather possess something that the rest of the nation lacks. And that by tapping into these suburbanites, um, Ed in particular are able to, uh, able to, to live a full, uh, full masculine, uh, life once again. And, and actually the idea of masculinity was reflected in Dick, in Dickie's later novels too. I mean, most effectively in deliverance, but, um, uh, Man but, against nature, man against. I mean, it's it's was the heart and soul of what Dicky wrote wrote after Deliverance. Deliverance really changed James Dicky as well. Right, I would I would agree with that. Yeah, and Dicky would claim that you know there was kind of this was uh, I don't know if he was being truthful, but he would say you know kind of all of the characters. There was a little bit of him and all the different characters, the suburbanite characters, and that, and that, you know, he had had some of these experiences, which kind of makes your eyes widen, you know, when you think about all the experiences and, and deliverance, but yeah, certainly, yeah, Dickie, um, yeah, he was, you know, he, yeah, he kind of had this persona as a, you know, kind of freewheeling, kind of hard drinking, you know, tough guy. I mean, he's, he, you know, he's cast as the sheriff, you know, in the, in, in the film and, uh, is, is not particularly a, uh, positive presence on, on, on the set. Um, but, but yeah, he's, he is this, he, he, he seeks to be this, this very almost kind of hyper masculine individual. And I think his, he tries to shape a persona that, that fits into that. Well, having been his colleague and and known him, I'll say that's right on target. So, Mm -hmm. okay, good. (laughs) Okay. I've been thinking about individuals who've been writing about the South and the 19, 60s and 1970s. And one black author came to mind, Albert Murray's memoir, South to a Very Old Place. The old place happens to be Alabama. It's sort of a story of the changing South. It's not a story of the vicious South. And it's certainly not a story of the, of the down-home South. But when people have questioned your book about, well, you know, this is just white, white folks writing about white folks. Mm-hmm. There were African-Americans Native Southerners who were noticing that yes, in some ways times were a changing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think you know, and I think that's certainly the case. And what I found in in my research is, you know, there are certainly African Americans who are participating definitely in the vicious South discourse. You know, you think about you know uh, like Nina Simone's famous song about Mississippi that she. Uh, you know, performs in the, in the early to mid sixties. And, you know, this is a song that is, you know, very full of you know, righteous indignation and, and anger about the, the, really the white South, you know, and she says in that song, you know, everybody, everybody knows about Mississippi. And what she means by that is that, you know, everybody knows this, the vicious racist nature of that state, you know, and what it does to black people, it grinds them down, humiliates them. And kills them, and kills them very often. Um, and so, you know, when you know Martin Luther King is writing a letter from Birmingham Jail, I mean, he's you know suggesting that he's not quite there yet, but he's he's really starting to think that the biggest obstacle to civil rights protests in the South is is the white moderate who's just saying, "Hey, slow down, everybody." So, what I would suggest is that I think for most African-Americans, and you can find some exceptions, but I don't think that the changing South or the down-home South uh, narrative is particularly compelling because remember, these are, these are narratives about white people, 
Um, so certainly you find folks like journalist uh, Louis Lomax, who I talk about in the book. He's a African-American uh, gentleman who talks about going back to his hometown of Valdosta, Georgia, and finding that things are changing, you know, in a, in a positive way, slowly but surely. You know, whites are seeming to kind of be loosening their their grip on notions of white supremacy. But I think like the down home South is, you know, there's not really much to appeal to African-Americans there. Um, it's not really clear why they should be kind of celebrating kind of a folksy down home rural whiteness, you know, which I think in some ways could be perceived by them as, you know, shading over some type of inherent racism. And in fact, I think that that's the point of a lot of African-Americans who, for example, criticize the Andy Griffith show. And, uh, you know, so that the appeal of that kind of down home South, I think for African-Americans is just not, not particularly strong, but certainly, yeah, they're, they're, they, they need to use the, that vicious South narrative in a way to try to advance their, their civil rights agenda. Certainly. Well, of course, coming of age in Mississippi is a good example of that. Uh, Absolutely. Changing, changing South could be, you could get John Edgar Wideman's father along when he comes back to the South Carolina of his grandparents. Mm-hmm. Um, he notices changes, but he's also ambivalent about, is this just surface? Right. Or right. is it is there is there more than black folks and white folks going to the same restaurant? Yes. And I think, I think whites, you know, I think what I've found is that probably you would find more whites who would be willing to see the changes and be more optimistic about them than African-Americans would be. I think you would see African-Americans taking more of a kind of a, yeah, like you were describing, let's, let's kind of wait and see, you know, let's not get too excited about about this. Yeah. Are we just taking down uh, white and, and, and colored signs or are we actually transforming the society are we moving toward greater racial justice or are we just is it just window dressing well of course we we were talking about a particular south but if you if you look at a south of the 21st century you're beginning to see more of an urban rural divide than there was back in the 1960s and 1970s that's right yeah and i mean you know you're still you're even seeing that you know, with kind of the beginnings of the the development of the Sun Belt South, uh, you know, scholars have talked about you know Deliverance, for example, as being an allegory of the of the Sun Belt South because you know again these are suburban guys. You know, so yeah, that that divide has has become uh, more pronounced, but I think it's certainly evident certainly evident by the 1970s. Well, one South that seems to have have disappeared altogether is the Moonlight and Magnolia South. I mean, to an extent, I guess you, you know, you, you certainly still see it in plantation tourism. You know, there's, there's always the dilemma. Um, I hope that there's at least a dilemma in the sense that there's, a, there's thought about this of how to portray plantations in the South and incorporating the perspectives of African-Americans and also just being honest about the kinds of things that happen there. And I think too often that the nature of these plantations is essentially kind of brutal work camps for African-Americans is is not really, you know, the reason that people are going to um, plantations and and having their wedding photos taken there. Um, But so I think my point is that I think that you still have, you know, that Moonlight of Magnolias South. I mean, I think you still have a lot of people who hopefully know better, but still can pop in gone with the wind and say, Oh, you know, the, the old South, that was kind of nice, you know, <laughs> you know? So I think it's, I think it's still, unfortunately, I think it's, it's still there. Yeah. It's, it's perhaps in more muted form, but I don't think by any means that, it, that, that, uh, moonlight of Magnolia South has, has gone away. Well, well, Zach, I hate to tell you, but I think it's folks from outside the South who hunger, they come to Charleston or Columbia, Savannah, and that's the South they want to hear about. They don't want to hear about, Black folks, although white, more white Southerners, I think, are interested in that than, than folk from somewhere else. I can just say that having been involved in, in historical societies and, and museums and following guides and listening to questions, and they want the Yankees running up the steps, and they want Scarlet with her pistol, and they want, you know, mm-hmm. uh, they want faithful Mammy and that mm-hmm. kind of thing. 
Oh, um, I, I, I think you're no, Walter. I think you're right. I mean, I absolutely. And you know, Karen Cox has has written about this in her uh, her book, you know, Dreaming of Dixie. You know, she's talking about imaginings of the South, earlier imaginings in the late 19th and early 20th century. But those imaginings she's focused on are largely kind of the moonlight of the moonlight and magnolia variety, and much of it is produced in the North. You know, not not by Southerners, but by by Northerners. And so, yeah, I think you're absolutely right. Northerners have this investment in this this image of of the South, and that, I think that's what's so interesting about the South is, is one of the things that's so interesting about it is that you know you can have all of these different ideas. You know, the South is, you know, uh, a racist hellhole. You know, that could be one narrative and is one narrative. Or the South is all of the best qualities in America are located, you know, in, in, in the South. And those can coexist in the same person's mind. And they can do that without being overwhelmed by the seeming cognitive dissonance. And I think that we're just kind of so used to, as Americans, thinking in these conflicting and conflicted ways about that about the south that we're able to hold just multiple ideas about the the south in our mind at, at any given time and not not really kind of feel you know strange about say an american in the 1960s you know uh, watching news coverage of uh, civil rights protests and you know feeling sympathetic for for these black protesters and then you know, um, going to see perhaps a re-release of, uh, you know, Gone with the Wind at the Locust Cine- Cineplex and, you know, and, and enjoying it. And and then you could get into the argument that Southern historians and sociologists, and I think about my friend Joel Shelton Reed, and think about, well, which South are you talking about? You're talking about the Gulf South. You're talking about mm-hmm. the Mountain South. Uh, you're talking about the Milltown South. I mean, that's, there, that's there are a lot of Souths. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think that what I talk about in in the book is how a lot of those, you know, Souths have just kind of in the popular imagination, specific at other times, but specifically in the time period that I'm talking about, the 60s and the 70s, they become kind of conflated in in people's minds. You know, there there obviously isn't, as you aptly described, there is no monolithic South. There are many, there are many Souths. But uh, but many times Americans are are able um, or desirous to think about the South as kind of one you know big monolithic thing, uh, kind of unchanging thing, um, depending on what whatever need they require the South to serve at, at any given time. Today, Southerners will will say, or the white Southerners, some black Southerners too, look at look at your your state of Virginia. Well, we don't count the Washington suburbs as really being Southern anymore. Right. Florida beyond the panhandle, south of the St. John's River, that's not, that's not southern anymore. People like to cut Atlanta out of Georgia. Mm-hmm. Part of that has to do with ruralness, opposing the, the big city, but a south that seems to be quite different, whether it's ethnic in, in Florida, urban in Atlanta, suburban, very progressive in northern Virginia— when people say that's not South, I think those people who are saying that are hearkening back to a South that they grew up in really before this two decades of change that you're talking about. I think that's true. Yeah, I think it's a South that, that they're envisioning a South that's over, overwhelmingly white, that, yeah, it tends to be, tends to be more rural, tends to be more, more conservative. Um, I think it also, to put it in a modern sense, I think it, it you know, there's sometimes a sense that the real South, you know, um, that, that idea gets conflated with uh, kind of red state America. So, you know, Durham, North Carolina, where I lived, you know, is very blue, you know, is very hip, you know, uh, painfully hip at times, you know, is that the South? Um, I mean, I think most people would say it is, but you could certainly some would make an argument and say, well, you know, that's not the, that's not the real South, you know, that's the gentrified South or whatever you, whatever you want to call it. Um, a northernized South, but but yeah, I mean, you know, and once you start cutting out sections of the South, then yeah, I don't know. Eventually, you're just going to be left with no South, <laughs> I guess. But a lot of a lot of Swiss cheese on the map. A lot of yeah, at least a lot of Swiss cheese on the map. That's right. I hate to tell you, but Alfred's giving me the wind up sign. I think I can talk with you for another hour or two. Um, Likewise. So, how about last words for our listeners about your book? Anything that's on your mind. Sure. Well, I think I think people will be uh, pleasantly surprised when they when they when they pick up this book. And you know, it's it's a book that's about the South. It's a book that is about 
uh, popular culture. It's about music. It's about politics. Uh, you know, it is it is really a book that is about uh, America during this incredibly fascinating and divisive and turbulent era, you know, from, you know, the 1960s through the 1970s. And so I think that is it is really a book that in which there's uh, something kind of something in it for everyone, um, kind of regardless of your of your interests. So. All right. Well, Zach Lechner author of The South of the Mind, American Imaginings of White Southernness, 1960 to 1980. Thanks so much for being with us today on The Journal. Thank you, Walter. It's been a real pleasure. This is Walter Edgar, and I hope you enjoyed today's journal. I know that I did. Zachary Lechner's book, The South of the Mind, American Imaginings of White Southernness, 1960 to 1980, really got me going in terms of when did Hank Williams Jr. write A Country Boy Can Survive? What about Will Campbell's Brother to a Dragonfly or John Edgar Wideman's Father Along about coming to Greenwood, South Carolina? It's a very interesting story, not just about the American South, but America, the United States, in these two decades. And the South, whether it was in film, in song, or in fiction, people wanted to latch onto for one reason or another. And it's all a part of our history. This is Walter Edgar. Join me next week for more of The Journal. Walter Edgar's Journal is a production of South Carolina Public Radio. The producer and engineer is Alfred Turner. Production of this program is made possible in part by listener contributions to the ETB Endowment of South Carolina. The views and opinions expressed on Walter Edgar's Journal are not necessarily those of South Carolina Public Radio.